Section 22 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avaii in July 2015. Sir Francis Drake's Anchorage by Edward L. Berthaud. The Elizabethan era was the dawn of the birth of the supremacy of the English navy, which was destined in the 17th and 18th centuries to sweep the seas of Spanish, Dutch, and French navies, and destroy the commercial monopoly of Spain in the New World. Foremost among the English to attack the attempted monopoly of Spain in the Americas and the East Indies were Drake and Cavendish who, with what today seem ridiculously insufficient armaments, shook Spanish pride and conceit, and captured the fabulous wealth they yearly sent in galleons to the mother country. In 1577, under the auspices of England's queen, a silent partner and sharer in the expected booty, Sir Francis Drake sailed from England to raid the Spanish colonies of North and South America. Sir Francis Drake was one of the boldest buccaneers and navigators that ever sailed from England. He was every inch a sailor. Of infinite bravery, skill, and self-reliance, he sallied out to shear the golden fleece so long the sole monopoly of Spain. Judged today by the standard of present accepted morality, Drake's naval campaign was but a shade above piracy. It was conquest and plunder with no pretension to discovery or commerce. What it achieved was merely incidental in his plans of occupation, a mingling of chivalric bravery with a modicum of religious fervor. One Fletcher, a clergyman, was his chaplain and exhorter, but was not a very zealous workman in the vineyard of the Lord. Fletcher and one Pretty have both left an elaborate account of Drake's res geste, which in main facts correspond tolerably well. Sir Francis Drake, whom Fletcher calls our admiral, having raided and plundered the west coast of South America and of Central America and Mexico, from Chile to Guatulco, capturing ships, towns, and great treasures of gold, silver, and plate, spreading a reign of terror in that whole region, reached at last the port of Guatulco, a haven a short distance west of Tehuantepec. At Guatulco, Drake, knowing that the whole power of Spain was now aroused and on the Kivive in the South Sea, and that the return route by the Straits of Magellan was too dangerous and uncertain, both on account of difficult navigation and certain attack from Spanish fleets, boldly resolved to return to England by the Pacific Ocean, the Moluccas and East Indies, and the Cape of Good Hope, a longer but a safer route. Leaving Guatulco well loaded with plunder, Drake sailed northwestward instead of westward. His true course, some five hundred leagues in longitude, and to June third, one thousand four hundred leagues in all, until we came into forty-two degrees north latitude, but pretty says 43 degrees of the pole arctic although fletcher and pretty differ somewhat in their account 
both agree that the cold for them was intense after their long cruise in the tropics pretty says our men being pinched with the same complained of the extremity thereof while fletcher pithily says they seemed to be in the frozen zone on june fifth our militant chaplain says we were forced by contrary winds to run in with the shore and so cast anchor in a bad bay here the cold continuing and as fletcher calls them vile thick and stinking fogs prevailing they were unable to remain but were forced to go no farther north curiously enough at this point of his narrative fletcher seems to have had his mind or his memory much affected probably by the aforesaid fogs for in the next paragraph he gravely tells that this bad bay was in the height latitude of forty eight degrees north not far from the entrance of puget sound into the pacific ocean so if fletcher is correct in his statement as to the latitudes gained then from june third to june fifth fifteen seventy nine drake had sailed in three days six degrees of latitude or over four hundred miles or taking pretty's estimate of five degrees some three hundred fifty miles but when they concluded to leave this locality and return southward they followed the coast which he says was reasonably plain yet the hills were covered with snow thus returning with propitious winds our clerical narrator tells us it took them to june seventeenth fifteen seventy nine to reach on the coast the parallel of thirty eight degrees thirty minutes north latitude a convenient and fit harbour as fletcher calls it we can say here that fletcher's bay with the vile stinking fogs which he says was in forty eight degrees north latitude must be considered as an error made by him in place of forty three degrees latitude greenhow in his discussion on the oregon question years ago comments on the discrepancy of time between drake's rapid journey northward and the twelve days time it took the admiral to sail back to the thirty eight degrees thirty minutes point with favouring wind prior in his collection of voyages a well-known english work plainly says drake went to forty three degrees north latitude then sailed back south to thirty eight degrees latitude that this is no surmise on our part as to wind and weather fletcher himself says the bay was a most uncomfortable spot for them and they were driven south to find a better place of anchorage after carefully comparing fletcher's and pretty's narratives it is evident drake landed somewhere on the coast of california but where is the point of discussion when however we consider the cold and frost experienced by them the confusion of latitudes given their northing and abrupt return we cannot give much weight to their latitudes taken in the storms and fogs that beset that coast and that their observations and date reckoning were not even close approximations nor can we believe such a magnificent bay and harbour as that of san francisco could have been so slightingly mentioned by him in the way he narrates so that the fit and convenient harbour and fair bay could not be the bay of san francisco bryant in his history of the united states discusses the probable location of drake's harbour on the coast of california 
and gives from hondius a map of his anchorage which has a strong resemblance of bodiga bay and romantsov point now known as bodiga head windsor's narrative and critical history of the united states enters largely and interestingly into this subject a resume of the arguments advanced on this mooted point adding to the hitherto scanty cartography of drake's discovery a copy of dudley's map the arcano del mare dudley's map we think but little elucidates the question it indicates certain bays and islands between the thirty-eight degrees and thirty-nine degrees north latitude one of which is called the bay of saint michael the other porto di nueva albion which aside from their approximation to the thirty-eight degrees and thirty-eight degrees thirty minutes latitude require constructive imagination to call bodiga bay and the port of san francisco professor hale in windsor's narrative and critical history hints that it may all be the work of dudley's imagination the map of the coast of california derived from father acosta's work in angel's memoirs geographiques curiously resembles dudley's map in several respects bahia de pinos can be taken to represent monterey bay and cabo de san francisco as point san pedro then follow islands that by a farther stretch of imagination can be supposed to represent the farallones while the bahia de las islas on the same lines represents the supposed san francisco bay if such was supposed to exist in the sixteenth century but is cabo de san francisco a name imposed on that headland after or before drake's voyage we hope that professor davidson will throw some light on that name in his father promised collation of viscaino's survey but acosta's map is of date anterior to viscaino's exploration we were inclined first to consider the group of islands between cabo de san francisco and punta de sardine as representing cabrillo's discoveries but their distance from monterey bay and their position towards cape mendocino seem to preclude this theory now fletcher says expressly from the height of forty-eight degrees forty-three degrees in which we now were to thirty-eight degrees we found the land by coasting along to be low in thirty-eight degrees thirty minutes we fell with a convenient and fit harbour and june seventeenth fifteen seventy nine came to anchor therein where we continued until july twenty-third san francisco bay is in latitude thirty seven degrees forty six minutes north bodiga bay is in thirty eight degrees thirty minutes north it is singular in view of what fletcher says that their anchorage was in thirty eight degrees thirty minutes that a bay south of drake's most southern return journey should be selected as the point where drake landed and took possession drake coasted to thirty-eight degrees latitude near to point reyes he finding no place of suitable anchorage or to land returns northward again and anchors in bodiga bay a most convenient point to refit where a few days after he indulges more anglicano in the antics of a regal crowning more befitting the neptunian masquerade of a jolly set of tars and successful buccaneers laden with plunder 
than the honours of a sober discovery, while the inane farce of taking possession for the crown of England disregarded the prior rights of Spanish discovery many years before Drake's landing. Fletcher, who enters in some detail as to what took place during their residence in the bay, says, on page 64, This country our general named Albion, etc. Another reason for the act of possession was evidently Drake's idea that by it he reaffirmed England's denial of Spanish monopoly, founded on the absurd bull of Pope Alexander sharing the eastern and western hemispheres between Spain and Portugal, a partition scouted by both France and England. The absurdity of the act of possession by Sir Francis Drake was in later years repeated in numerous localities on this globe, with signal advantage to England. In this manner the poor ignorant aborigines of Africa, Asia, and America have found themselves invested with the honours of allodial possession, duly transferred to England by the magic of treaties. These, with the claims of first discovery conveniently at hand, backed by presents of cast-off clothing, rum, theatrical crowns, and medals of Britannia, formed the foundation for future seizure and annexation. July 23, 1579, Drake left his anchoring ground, the Indians taking a sorrowful farewell, signalling with fires the departure of the buccaneers. Fletcher now tells us that not far without the harbour did lie certain isles, we called them the Isles of St. James, having on them plentiful and great store of seals and birds, with one of which we fell July 24th, whereon we found such provision as might completely serve our turn for a while. These islands, called by Fletcher the St. James, are undoubtedly the Farallones, yet it took them one day's sail to reach them from their anchorage. We can hardly think it would take a day to sail from Drake's Bay or San Francisco Harbour to reach these outlying islets. The preponderance of locality and distance seems to point to Bodega Bay as Drake's Harbour. It does not seem possible that in their desultory sailing up and down the coast they would have sailed right into San Francisco Bay without hesitation or difficulty in finding it. Then, again, it seems they discovered the St. James Islands only when they left the coast of California. Could they have ignored them when in June they sailed along the coast and entered the bay? On the theory that they stopped in Drake's Bay near Point Reyes, they were in sight of the Farallones. If they had sailed into San Francisco Harbor on June 17, 1579, they passed between Drake's Bay and the Farallones and could not fail to see or notice them. A discussion on the values of the latitudes given in the course of the desultory navigation of Drake along the coast of California will not be made here. We leave it to the eminent hydrographer Professor George Davidson, who has most clearly and sagaciously worked out the devious and puzzling questions involved from the explorations of Cabrillo and Ferrello, and he alone is competent to sit in judgment over the positive value of Drake's nautical astronomy. We have elaborated our theory as founded on conditions and physical facts given by the authorities consulted, 
while we have accepted the latitudes as closely correct when they are applied to the point discussed when it can be shown they agree with the landmarks described from the survey of Viscaino in 1601 to 1603 until late in the 18th century, the coasts of Upper and Lower California and Oregon were little known or studied. Serious changes took place after 1620, when map-makers began to consider California an island, an era perpetuated into the middle of the 18th century. On Duval's map of 1682, California is represented, and Canada is shown as bordering on California, Port San Francisco is in about 40 degrees north latitude, and the Rio del Norte is emptying into the Vermilion, most fanciful and unreal cartography founded on the worst error of former explorers. Engel and others quoted by him suggested in the last century that the discrepancies between the 16th century Spanish explorations and those brought out in the 18th century might be ascribed to changes in coast configuration. The shallowing of the sea along the coast, the formation of islands and reefs, were sufficient to account for changes in topographic and hydrographic features. We are unable to either affirm or deny the possibility of such changes in the 350 years since Cabrillo's exploration, yet we cannot forget that California and the region around San Francisco has been subjected to violent and oft-recurring seismic convolutions, which have elevated the region around San Francisco many feet above the present Pacific level and that these convulsions are still far from dormant is yearly witnessed by earthquake shocks, a state of high internal tension which might obliterate that magnificent bay. Consulting the account of Admiral Vizcaino's survey of the coast of California, as given in Father Venegas's History of California, the Capitana and Tender had no sooner left the harbour of Monterey than they had a favourable wind, which, lasting till the twelfth day, carried them beyond Port San Francisco. But the day after, which was the 7th January, the wind shifted to the northwest, but blowing an easy gale, still made some way, and the Tender, concluding there was no necessity for standing in for the shore, continued her voyage. The Capitana, thinking they were in company, did not show any light, by which means in the morning they had no sight of each other, and the General, Vizcaino, in the Capitana returned to Port San Francisco to wait for the tender. Another reason which included the Capitano to put into Puerto Francisco was to take a survey of it and see if anything was to be found of the San Augustine which in the year 1595 had, by order of His Majesty and the Viceroy, been sent from the Philippines by the Governor to survey the coast of California under the direction of Sebastian Rodriguez Kermenon, a pilot of known abilities, but was driven ashore in this harbour by the violence of the wind. Among others on board the San Augustine was the pilot Francisco Volanas, who was also chief pilot of the squadron, Vizcaínos and the general was desirous of putting in here to see if there remained any vestiges of the ship and cargo. The Capitana came to an anchor behind a point of land called La Punta de los Reyes. 
we consider that this quotation most signally proves that Port San Francisco was what is now known as Drake's Bay, and that Sebastian Vizcaino anchored at the northwestern corner under Punta de los Reyes, and if we accept Acosta's map as published previous to 1580, then it would appear that Port San Francisco is a name given to it by the Spaniards, and in no manner connected with Sir Francis Drake's anchorage or the subsequent dubbing of San Francisco Bay as the Bay of Sir Francis Drake. End of section 22